listeners, before we get to this episode of Problem Solvers, here is a word from our sponsor. Build the team that will build your business. With Upwork, you can find top developers, designers, project managers, and more who can start today so your business can succeed tomorrow. Hire at home or in 180 countries around the world to find the right talent for whatever your business needs. Upwork, the world's work marketplace. Learn more at Upwork.com. And now, on with the show. From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. As 2021 came to a close, I put a call out on social media saying, hey, what would you like to be predicted about the future? Like, what is the thing that you're wondering about that's coming? What is it that feels mysterious to you about the future, about the next year, about the next couple of years that you would love somebody to just be able to predict? And very interestingly, a number of the responses were about supply chains. Now, this is something that, of course, probably would not happen in years past. Supply chain is not a thing that the average person or even average entrepreneur sometimes is thinking about. But as we all know, 2021 changed that. Supply chains became a primary focus and for very good reason, because the supply chains in so many cases were breaking down. Entrepreneurs could not get the materials or final products that they needed to be able to deliver what they had promised to their customers. And so Supply chain management became a make or break skill. And what does that look like? Well, today I want to take you into the experience of one entrepreneur, one entrepreneur who makes a very complicated product and who had to take very proactive steps to make sure that this product would be available at the moment in which it was soaring in popularity. How did he do it and who is he? Well, let's start with an intro. I'm Ryan Close, the founder and CEO of Bartesian. And what is Bartesian? Bartesian is a premium cocktail maker that makes cocktails on demand at a push of a button. So what does that mean, a premium cocktail maker? Like, like explain the product. Right. So the Bartesian allows anyone to be a, a mixologist at home. You have a capsule-based system and an appliance, a countertop appliance. And inside the capsules are the bitters, liqueurs, and juices in real format. So nothing artificial or fake in there. It's the real bitters, liqueurs, and juices. And... Uh, you supply the spirits, so gin, rum, vodka, tequila, whiskey, whatever brands are your favorites, you load it into the appliance, and they're very clearly marked glass reservoirs. And then you take your capsule, albeit a witch's heart, cosmopolitan, whiskey sour, old-fashioned, you pop it in, it's going to read the barcode, you get to select your strength, you want a mocktail, light, you want to go hard that night and have a strong, and you hit go, and in about 20 seconds, it's going to pull the alcohol, so if you pick the Long Island iced tea, it's going to pull from three different reservoirs, right? So there's a water source in the back, so it's going to reconstitute those ingredients and self-clean. And so it takes, what, 15 to 20 seconds, you get a perfectly made cocktail. This is a consumer product, although you can find Bartesian machines inside of luxury suites and stadiums and arenas. So, you know, somebody shows up at Wrigley Field watching a Cubs game, they have box suite and they can use the machine to make a cocktail. Anyway, you can imagine that this is exactly the kind of product that would do really well during a pandemic. And indeed, it did, which was good until, of course supply chain problems got in the way. So we had to manage our supply chain and we went through a lot of these struggles and we learned 
what are the cracks in our foundation? What are the potential risks of us going out of business? And when you're growing 300% month over month, you learn that really quick. And so we were able to, or we were forced to really make decisions about a year and a half ago that take nine to 15 months to come to fruition. I say forced, we had the option to keep going, but at the risk to us, right? And we, we wanted to control our destiny. And what were those struggles? What were those decisions? This week on Problem Solvers is another edition in our ongoing series, The Future of Work. And that is because what Bartesian has had to grapple with is something that we all will very likely be grappling with in some way or another, for some reason, for a very long time. How do you make sure that a global supply chain does not break down and everyone can have a nice cocktail at home? That is what Bartesian has spent years figuring out, and it's all coming up after the break. Where do you go when you want to create, manage, and grow your business online? Wix, the leading website creation platform. Create a site with designer-made templates that can be customized for your business and looks great on all devices. Reach new audiences with intelligent SEO tools designed to get you found on search engines and manage it all from one place, at home, at the office, or on the go. You'll never miss a thing when it comes to your business. So join over 200 million people already doing it and head over to Wix.com to get started. All right, we're back. So just before the break, Ryan of Bartesian said that he had to make decisions about a year and a half ago that would take nine to 15 months to come to fruition, but that were ultimately aimed at making sure that he could deliver the product that he had promised to consumers and meet this growing marketplace demand without a supply chain breakdown mucking it all up. So what were those decisions? Let's get into the specifics. So, you know, we had offshore capsule production. So each of our cap, our cocktail capsules is a recyclable capsule that we manufactured in China, the actual cup itself. And then we would ship it to the US and then we would work with factories here. We had owned our own line here that to fill it right with, with North American based products. But the lead time to get those cups from China was significant, you know, upwards of six months. And so we realized that, you know, we were getting hit, hit with some tariffs, but this is again, about a year and a half ago, we were having a difficulty with just in time when you're when you got you know four to six month lead times. So we said, all right, what are the options for us? And one was create the tooling in in the U.S. and the per capsule unit cost was significantly higher. But so we had to make the choice of okay, we're going to get hit on this per unit cost, but the benefits are you know we can make smaller amounts based on our. We're a new company. We don't know how fast we're going to go for is the 300% going to continue is it going to drop down a bit so we just needed that flexibility and so that was more important than that unit cost so in that instance in that example we said you know this makes more sense even though the economics right now don't make a ton of sense we believe they will in a year a year and a half so we did that and we and we manufactured tooling right here right outside of Illinois and uh we're paying a little more but I'll tell you right now I do it again 10 times over right so you go through a whole lot of decisions related to your own supply chain at a time in which there is not a global supply chain issue the way that there is now. But I guess this means that you had supply chain on your mind. You were very familiar with the issues. And therefore, do you think you were just more sensitive to conversations that were happening or things that you were noticing about shifts in, in your own supply chain where you were thinking, you know, there's a problem coming here? You bet. I mean, I'm in, at nature a doom and gloom kind of guy in terms of what 
could happen is may likely happen, right? And so we, as an organization, we have a very small team. I mean, at the time we were making these decisions, there was three or four of us really running the business. And so it's like, all right, well, what could happen? And it's, if we run out of capsules, we're out of business, right? I mean, that's that's a big one right there. If our demand continues at this 400, 300% growth, we're going to need additional factories that we can pull from. So the worst case scenario, because we didn't shut down the, the Chinese factories, we did, we layered, right? So we, we just added an additional one here in the US, knowing that, you know, we got, it's going to take, once it hits the water, three months or, you know, sometimes to get into our facilities. So we basically just looked at every decision as what's the worst that can happen? What's going to make sure we're not putting ourselves in a situation where we can go out of business? So you moving, moving to the US, well, you said this was a year and a half. So this was covered, but it was pre like everybody is screwed by global supply chain issues, right? This is not that time. This the is, decision this is a collection was then, yeah. but the implementation wasn't, right? Like, so the decision was then, but then, you know, it took so long to get this tooling, right? So that would, would be an example. Got it. Okay. So in other words, you never wanted to go all in on one location because tell me more about that. You understood foundationally that relying on a, on a single manufacturer was possibly big trouble. Yeah. I mean, just like you want to diversify your port investment portfolio, you're going to want to diversify your, your vendor portfolio, right? So we, and, and myself really from the start was, we don't want to just have one distributor. We don't want to just have one, you know, direct to consumer shipping company or, uh, manufacturer of one specific part that our business is so solely relies on because you know they have a fire they have a union issue dispute we're screwed right so that's you know every decision we made but hopping back Jason into you know the question on you know kind of some of those decisions and in terms of the supply like the covid impacted supply chain one specifically was you know capsules and introducing new cocktail flavors for our customers is vital to our business right people bought this Spartesian, they want it on their, their countertop, they want to experience new cocktails for themselves and their guests. So it's up to us to introduce new cocktails and we get recommendations, suggestions from them. And so we, and we manufacture them, right? And, and it creates, we have to go out and source all the ingredients. Some of them, like our aviation, we're sourcing creme de violette from Italy. And so, you know, we anticipated, I would say really well, and, and, and Mike Bauer, our head of supply chain, did an incredible job of seeing, foreshadowing some of these, I guess we'll call them stacked supply chain challenges that we're seeing, right? Like where it's, okay, great. You're, you're having problem with at the manufacturing site, but you're also going to have, you know, you're never going to get on a, on a boat. Once you get on the boat, you know, good luck getting, once you un- unloaded on the port, right? Once you're <laughs> finally unloaded on the port, you can't get a chassis and you get a chassis, you can't get a truck driver. I mean, I'm sure, you know, and your, and your viewers know all the different variables that are leading to this really chaos as, as we're seeing it now. And so Mike and, and the team, we, we looked together and we said, all right, what, what can we do? And I'm not to say we, we knew every single one of these details, but not, not by a stretch, but we knew something was going to surprise us, essentially. And so for the instance of the capsules, we went out and bought the next 20 cocktails, the ingredients that we're going to need to roll out, even though that was on a, on a six-month timeline that we were going to roll it out. So we would, we would purchase up in advance which is tough for us. I mean, it'd be easier for a, a big company like P&G or these Nestle. I mean, we're, we're a small startup, so it puts significant strains on the on cash flow. And But we realize that that's more critical than the, the alternative of just not having product and new releases for our customers who expect it. And that's not the only thing that you bought in advance. And maybe this is a transition into things that you were doing specifically because of COVID-related issues. But you also ordered... Do I have this right? 70,000 microchips a year 
early so that you would make sure that you could manufacture new machines and weren't caught in the global microchip shortage? Is that right? Yeah. I mean, fortunately, we we have great partners that you know we licensed the appliance out to. So we, we realized early on we did not want to be both a CPG company and a hardware company because there's, again, there's too many ways we could fail and die. It's just and, and the cash burn of the hardware company is, is disastrous. And when we looked at the economics, so we decided we want to be a CPG company where that's, you know, it was more profitable business. So we licensed that hardware to a couple different companies, one of them being Hamilton Beach Brands, billion dollar company that's been serviced, manufacturing, distributing appliances for over a hundred years. And so they fortunately worked with us. We looked at forecast demand and we said, okay, what are potential hiccups here? Well, it was the microprocessors and barcode readers were some of the really potential uh, bottlenecks. And and so we agreed together and, and fortunately they have a solid team that researched and reviewed and, and was able to procure 70,000 at a significantly higher price, right? So it's it's literally hedging their bet and, and willing to pay more to get them to lock and secure them in. And they did that actually with uh, containers as well. So they were they hedged and booked containers, thousands of them, at a significantly higher price because the alternative was simply just not to have the container and not have the product. Right. And this would have been infinitely harder, I imagine, if you were trying to build that hardware yourself. Oh, definitely. I mean, we did years ago. That was the original plan was to, and, and we, in Canada, we were, you know, in a little garage of building with a team and, and assembling cocktail machines. And I think it was a few weekends of that, we realized this is not going to work just in, in terms of, you know, one product has a problem with it. We're not set up to go to China and navigate and manage and with factories. So, you know, I ended up going to China we had tooled up and, and you know spent a lot of money on this tooling, so we wanted to keep it, and we transitioned that tooling to our new factory there. Now, you might be thinking, as you heard that answer, uh, wait, hold up a second here. I want to understand more about how he made the decision to not manufacture his own product, and that is something that I'm going to follow up with Ryan in just a minute, because thinking through that is also very interesting and a important solution, in his case at least, to the supply chain problem. All coming up after this short break. If you're a software engineer, then you have been there. It's 9 p.m., you're finally unwinding from work, and your phone buzzes with an alert. Something is broken. What could it be? The server? The network? Now your whole team is scrambling from tool to tool to find and fix the issue, but you know what? None of this would happen if you just got new Relic. New Relic combines 16 different monitoring products that you'd normally buy separately, so engineering teams can see across their entire software stack in one place. More importantly, you can pinpoint issues down to the line of code so you know exactly why the problem happened and can resolve it quickly. That's why the dev and ops teams at DoorDash, Epic Games, and more than 14,000 other companies use New Relic to debug and improve their software. That next 9 p.m. call is just waiting to happen. So get New Relic before it does. And you can get access to the whole New Relic platform and 100 gigabytes of data free forever. No credit card required. Sign up at newrelic.com slash problem solvers. That is N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash problem solvers. Newrelic.com slash problem solvers. All right, we're back and it's time to jump right back into the conversation. This is a challenge that I think many young companies have, which is that they touch a number of different industries and their instinct is probably to try to be all of them. Right? We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. 
I watch Peloton and it's vertical integration and we're going to build everything ourselves and we're going to do everything. But you made a conscious decision. We are playing in one arena. We are not going to both figure out how to create cocktails for consumers and then also build machines and sell machines. Can you take me a little bit more into what that decision was like and whether it was a hard decision or ultimately it felt like a obvious decision? It was a hard one because we had purchase orders and LOIs from pretty big retailers. for, And we knew we had that user fit, that product market fit. We were very successful on Kickstarter. We were a top 1% launch and we had some cash, right? So we had, and we had some engineering skill set within the organization, um, hardware specifically. And so I was always pushing for, let's license out the hardware. I went to some of these, you know, startup group settings when, and talked to other hardware companies and Every time it was just one headache after another and one delay after the other. And cash burn was always the biggest thing. And, you know, I'm a simple guy and I just like to look at like, what's the, the net net zero, what's the net impact of everything. And, and it seemed like the net impact of all these companies that were failing, they were running out of cash because they just had too much tied into that. And fortunate. And a last point on that is I had a, an advisor who was a CEO of higher appliances. So H A I E R. And so his name was Adrian. And and he had told me early on, right when we were still planning on the hardware, he said, the best in the world of these hardware companies, like the, the Whirlpool, GE, Hamilton Beach, they're not making a ton of uh, profit on these appliances. It's just the scale, right? It's the volume and the scale. And these are, and these are the, like the best in the world, right? And so like, what do you think you're going to make? And so we, the way we, we license it out, we got a royalty. So we still get net, we're still profitable on the appliance which is more than a lot of these consumable type companies, right? And so we, yeah. you know, it, it was a decision that for me, it was a no-brainer. We had to do it. It was tough because we lose out on that top-line revenue because when you know Hamilton Beach is selling millions of dollars on Amazon of the appliance, we can't say Bartesian's top-line revenue. So when you're fundraising and you know, you're, you're raising at a certain valuation and you're saying, okay, well, this is what we actually sold, but this is our net rev- or this is our revenue. And they're like, well, we just care about your revenue. I'm like, well, kind of tough because we should be banking that revenue. It's still Bartesian product, right? That makes sense. Yeah. What advice would you have to companies who are young and asking themselves that existential question? You would frame it for yourself. Are we a hardware company or are we a CPG company? And you, you decided we're a CPG company. There's a lot of versions of that question out there. Am I this kind of company or am I that kind of company? What company am I exactly? I have a lot of things that I want to do and probably don't have the resources to do all of them. How would you advise that companies just start or founders just start to try to answer that question for themselves? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I guess I think what I could say is what some people are doing, and I think sometimes it's a mistake, is they look at their core competencies. And this is what the books will tell you is, okay, if your core competency is in hardware, then you should stick with hardware. If it's in the CPG, you should do the CPG. And I would kind of, maybe it's a, a lot of people would argue with this, but I would say it's more important to understand the economics of your business and where you're making money at the end of the day. And if there is a pool of potential partners that you can draw from that can take care of those things, even if your core competency is those items, if there's a pool of lower cost vendors and partners that can take that on, for you and the economics <laughs> make sense for it, jump it, make that choice and try it. And if they fail, and if you're trying that and, and, and they fail, you could at least go backwards, right? You haven't done that initial investment and said, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm going to tool up. I'm going to build, you know, I'm going to hire 40 people to manufacture or engineer. I'm going to hire a, a build a line. Like that's the other thing. Like we didn't build our own lines. We went to contract manufacturers 
And we said, you know, here's our volumes for the next three years. If you build a line for us, you get the business. And we went to 15 different co-men and, and picked the best ones for us, right? So there's no upfront cash for us. And then if the co-man's not doing a great job, we can slowly kind of end that relationship as long as we're hitting our minimums, right, and, and manage that, we can adjust and be flexible. So I don't know if that's succinct enough for for any listeners there. That's great. I mean, I really like I, I like the two elements of that. I mean, one, you're saying something that feels counterintuitive, which is don't just focus on your core competency because, yeah, fine, your core competency, you may be great at it, but that doesn't mean that it creates a logical economics for your business. In fact, you might just be trying to compete against people who already know exactly what they're doing and could do it a lot better. But then also, number two, you're saying, don't make the first decision that could sink you. If you're going to make a mistake the first time, make that mistake be the one that doesn't destroy your business. Exactly. I remember a company that was a hardware and a consumable, and they were telling me that you know all the supply chain that they were owning, so they would they would literally have their own farms and are making their own ingredients for this. And, it was, and they wanted to own every single element of the supply chain. And then another one was, I remember reading about the razor blade company, Dollar Shave Club. And and they, and it was obviously a smart decision. They ended up doing really well and continue to do so. But you know, they wanted to own that distribution element. And that was a, a key to their success they found. And so again, like these decisions, it's like, okay, well, do we do that? Like, and, and we talked about that, you know, a year and a half, two years ago. And, and you look at the, the economics and you're like, okay, well, we invest a few million now and this, this is what we can get. But what the problem is with a new company is you're then banking on that sustainable and consistent growth. You're tied into that, that cash burn. So the one thing we've made decision after decision the same way, very consistent, is eliminate cash burn. I mean, we're still, we have 13 people on our team. We're, we're very small. We're generating millions of dollars of revenue monthly, but we're still extremely lean and lean on our partners and just don't want to have any of that sustained supply chain pressure. I'll ask you one more thing that you did, which is focus on e-commerce channels as a way of not locking up inventory. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. I mean, at first we were really excited and, and the biggest thing for us was trying to get on retail store shelves, you know, Williams Sonoma, Bed Bath Beyond, let's get there. That's that's when you've made it, right? When you're on these short shelves, store shelves. And what we discovered was when we did some tests, and again, back to that theme of test things before you go all in, um, and then you you learn all the you know, the monsters in the closet, you, you pick those up pretty quick. And so, you know, we discovered the POS may not be as well as you as expected, the, the you know, the display, the timing, the the product knowledge within the store. And even if they get it right and all those things, and, and we have some retail partners that did a great job, you're still left. You're not making a lot of money. I mean, they, they demand significant margin. Their sell-through is not going to be as quickly as you've liked in some instances because of whatever reason they didn't restock. There was 50 in the back and you know they were sold out for three days on the, on the floor. All these different things happen. But at the end of the day, I mean, they're just, it's a low margin channel. And so when we were having challenges staying in stock on the appliance because the demand was so high, at the time it was a decision, but reflecting back, it really wasn't because anyone would make it. It's like, let's pick the channel that has the strongest margin that we're, all, we're selling through here. So we're selling through an Amazon Bartesian.com, we're blazing with limited digital ad spend. We're, we're selling heaps of inventory. So let's just kill it in a lot of these retail environments. And then we can just be a little more selective. And, and then we came back to it, but we're just a lot more selective saying, okay, let's pick the 30 top doors at Williams-Sonoma. Let's pick the 
100 top doors at Macy's versus let's just go blast it out to every single bed bath that'll take us. Brian, let me ask you one final question. If you hadn't done a bunch of this stuff, what do you think your situation would be right now? Yeah. I mean, we would have definitely felt a ton of pressure and would have had to had some tough conversations with our customers saying, hey, here's why you can't have X or we're going to... We would have had to play games, I think, a little bit on the marketing games, I'll call them, where it's let's kill this skew and let's bring this skew, skew back or and versus just running the business like we do now, which is let's just delight the customer in any way possible. Profitability isn't our core objective. It's really not. At two years in business, it sounds crazy. My investors hate to hear that sometimes, but the goal is delight the customers and grow like mad. And so we've been doing that. But yeah, if we had not made some of these changes, we would have had to done a lot of item, you know, marketing initiatives that don't align with the core of our business. Perfect. Hey, Ryan, this was super interesting. And thanks for digging into the level of detail that you did with me. Right on, Jason. It was a pleasure chatting with you. And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.